Good to see so many of you today. It's good to see a number of guests who were here and hope to get a chance to connect with you or that you will take just a little time after worship to connect with some of us. I want to welcome those who join us on live stream today. We have people in hospital rooms and beach houses, lake houses who tune into our service. We want to welcome them. For I know many of them reach out and let us know how they're blessed by our worship services. I want to make a quick plug this morning before I dive into the sermon series that we're in. Um, There's a movie coming out in a few weeks. Uh, Steph Curry, the big basketball player, chose a couple of years ago that he was going to begin to invest in faith-based movies. So this is, I think, the first one he's invested in. There was a lot of work put into this movie. It's called Breakthrough. And uh, the production company reached out to church leaders and pastors to come and see, a, to see this movie a few weeks ago and then hopefully to try to promote it a little bit. So I was invited to go and watch this movie. It's called Breakthrough. It comes out in three weeks. It's based on a true story a few years ago. Maybe you've heard this. I think it's made the news a few times and it's a story that's been around social media. But a, a few years ago, there were three teenage boys. And they were running across, playing on some ice, and they, they fell through the ice. And one of them was underwater for about eight minutes before they were able to find his body and he went about an hour without a pulse and it's a movie about this church and this family and, and the power of prayer and also the what do we do with un, uh, uh, unanswered prayer and I, I really appreciate the movie that even though this boy they, he got his life back God brought him back to life that it, it ended the movie where it, it held on to the, like some of those raw pieces of life like what doesn't God save everybody who who, who drowns in some kind of situation. So it's a, it's a really good movie, and I want to encourage you in a few weeks to go and check it out. I tried to rent a theater for the church, but just ran into all kind of complications about that, so wasn't able to, to work out a room, but I would encourage you to go see it in a few weeks. We're in a series right now called Path of the Cross leading up to Easter. It's about a seven-week series. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. Last fall, I walked, I walked you through Mark chapter 1 all the way through Mark chapter 10. We spent a few months going through that. And now leading up to Easter Sunday, I'm just walking you through the last week of the life of Jesus. For some of the encounters Jesus had during that week, some of the specific places Jesus went for prayer, the, the encounters he had with people. And then there are some encounters that like we read a lot and some that like, why is that story told? Jesus had a lot of opponents, people who were against him. And sometimes they're not given names. You're not given names of a lot of the enemies of Jesus. They're, they're kind of put into groups like the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. But when it came to the last week of the life of Jesus, these groups who were often enemies, They didn't agree on hardly anything, theologically, politically, ideology. They were all over the place. But when it came to needing to take out Jesus, they all came together. They were on the same page for that. There was a common cause. So even though they didn't get along with almost any other aspect of life, they all saw the need, hey, we've got to take out Jesus. So these enemies and these opponents came together with this common cause to get rid of Jesus. Now, when they did this and... uh, uh, you, you have to think, number one, they saw Jesus as a major threat. What was it about Jesus that was so threatening to them? When Jesus came and he shook up their system, he came doing things on days where he would heal people. There were just a lot of things that Jesus was a threat. And today, I think even in our lives, like there's a part of Jesus that's still a threat to us today. And I'm not talking about Jesus walking around with the sword and arrows ready to throw them into you whenever you do something wrong. It's that Jesus did come and he still comes to shake up our lives a little bit. To poke and come after our priorities and our missed allegiances. 
They come to shake us up. To really challenge why we think about the way we think and what are our priorities and what's our heart set on. But, but I think a bigger thing with Jesus was, was when it came to that last week of the life of Jesus and with the opponents is there are a lot of judges. There are a lot of critics. And today people are paid to do this. You have paid critics and you have some people who want to be paid to be critics. There's people who offer a lot of criticism. There's people who judge a lot of people. And even some of you may have jobs where you feel like this happens to you every single day. That there's somebody looking over your shoulder. Maybe even in your family. Maybe the way you were raised. Somebody who is criticizing everything. The big question for us is when criticism comes, when we are judged, what, what, what happens to our character? Because sometimes in those situations, character is like the first thing to go. It's like we're going to set character aside because there's some things I want to say in this moment. What's so amazing about Jesus is that all the opposition that came at him those last few days is that his character never faded. He didn't forget who he was. He didn't forget whose he was. His character was intact. So a couple of these stories, you read one in Mark chapter 14, 1 and 2, that here are some opponents. And the way the story is set up is now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away. So this is two days before it. And then the day before, he's going to have the Passover meal, and then he's going to die. So two days before that, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. Now skip a few verses, because in Mark 14, 10 through 11, what you read is, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. So they were looking for a way. And a few verses later, Judas is going to help provide the way. And they were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money, so he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So you have chief priests in verse 1 and 2. You have Judas in verse 10 through 11. And in the middle, there is this story with an unlikely encounter, with an unexpected hero. And it's a story that pushes Judas over the edge. And it goes like this, verse 3 through 9. While he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume made of pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. Some of those present were saying indignantly, they were angry to one another. Why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, Jesus said. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare, my, to, to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done also will be told in memory of her. For some reason, this story is what pushes Judas over the edge. I think Judas's heart was already bent. Like he wasn't really happy with the way things were going. But there's something about this story where Judas sees what this woman does and how Jesus responds. And Judas's response to that is, yeah, I think, I think he's got to go. To see a woman submit herself in this kind of way, surrender herself, risking embarrassment to anoint Jesus's feet and Jesus's head. And yet, Judas leaves this encounter knowing Jesus has, we, we've got to do something about Jesus. Now, let's walk through this story. Go back to verse 3. It starts with this, while he was in Bethany. Now, if you remember anything about Bethany, Bethany's the place where Jesus would stay that last week of the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't go to sleep in Jerusalem the last week of his life. 
He spent almost every day there, but he never slept there. The only time Jesus went to sleep in Jerusalem is when he died. So he went outside of Jerusalem and would stay in Bethany. It was about a two-mile journey, a two-mile walk to Bethany. That wouldn't take you too long. Less than an hour, you could be there. Bethany was a little small village. It wasn't a major town. And the people we know who were in Bethany primarily were Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. So in that small village was a place where Jesus healed some. And most remarkably, it was the place where Jesus took Lazarus, who had died, and brought him back to life. Now, you don't just know about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. When you read this story, it says Jesus is in Bethany. And the next, the next line is, he's in the home of Simon the leper. But when he's in a home, he's eating a meal, which Jesus eats a lot throughout the Gospels. A lot of times he's at tables. There was a diplomat who was down in South America being held hostage. He had been there for a while. When he was released, one of his friends said, what is the first thing you want to do with your freedom? And he said, there are three things I want to do with my freedom. Number one, I can't wait to eat a good meal. Number two, I want to read a good book. And number three, I want to have good conversations with friends. And when Jesus is asked, what are you going to do? Like, you're a couple of days away from dying. Not the people were asking him this, but for Jesus it was, I want to have some meals with friends. And I don't think Jesus said he wanted to read a good book. It may be the last thing on some of your minds if you were set free. But he also says, I want to have good conversations with friends. It says he's in the home of Simon the leper. Leper is not his last name. Most likely, this is a guy who's, it's pointing to his former way of life. Like at some point, this guy had leprosy, which was an awful disease, breaking down of bodily, uh, of breaking down of cells where you can't feel pain. They didn't really know what was the cause of leprosy, how you cured leprosy. You were just unclean. You couldn't be around people. You were removed from your family. You were an outcast. You had to yell unclean if anyone else came within like a 50-foot proximity of you so that you were removed from social, from social life. This wasn't just a physical disease. It was a social disease. And now that Simon the leper is housing people in his home for a meal means he probably has a home big enough to house people. So either Simon the leper had came upon wealth or had created some own wealth his own wealth, had a place where people could go. Then he got sick, and once he was healed, he came back. Or maybe he had leprosy, and he was healed, and then somehow created wealth. So we had a house where he could bring people in for a meal like this. We don't know any of that. We assume that at some point, Jesus is the one who healed Simon the leper. Which is kind of a cool thought to think that two days before Jesus dies on a cross, he's in a room with people who were there to testify to his witness where Jesus had healed them, had called them to a new way of life. Now, in John chapter 12, John tells this story, and John says, Lazarus is there. And John also says, this is Mary, who is the one who's going to anoint Jesus, not just any woman. And Mark and Matthew, they just say a woman. John says, hey, this was Mary. It's a room full of people who have been touched by Jesus' life and ministry. He's there in Simon the leper's house. The disciples are there, and then what you read is that a woman came with an alabaster jar, very costly ointment of nard, and she broke open the jar, poured the ointment on the head. Now, what we know about Mary is that Jesus just recently had raised her brother from the dead. So she's in awe of who Jesus is. 
And we don't know how she came upon oil that was worth this much money. Maybe she somehow created the wealth in her, with, with her own life and she was able to purchase this. Maybe, just maybe, like nard is what people would use to anoint the dead. Which makes me think, like, I wonder if this was the nard that was supposed to go on Lazarus after he had been dead for a few days. But they didn't get to that point because Jesus brought him back from the dead. So they didn't need it for Lazarus anymore. Maybe that's why. We do know that washing feet was a custom throughout almost all the time of the Bible. Now, in the book of Mark and in the book of Matthew, it doesn't say that she anointed Jesus' feet. It says she anointed his head. John tells you in this story that she anoints his feet. It's very possible it could have been both. The way people would have reclined at a table then, they didn't sit in chairs. They leaned with their heads close to a table and their feet coming out. So it was, I think, a custom where it wasn't too unusual for people to see those wash, people wash feet. In fact, Jesus ends up washing feet that kind of way. And maybe she also anoints his head. But foot washing was the last thing people would do before they went to bed. Like this wasn't just a religious custom. Like today, when I, when I tell Truett Noah to get ready for bed, do you know what the last thing is I tell them? Brush your teeth and then go to bed. Brush your teeth and go to bed. Back, back then, throughout almost all the Bible, it was wash your feet and then go to bed. Because if you didn't wash your feet then, you were, people would look down upon you as someone who is dirty and had no hygiene. After all, they wore sandals everywhere. They didn't have Nikes and Toms and Reebok pumps. They didn't have this kind of stuff. They wore sandals. There was dirt everywhere. The washing feet was something people would do every single day. It became a religious custom. And who washed feet was really important. Because through most of the times of the Bible, female slaves were the ones who would wash feet. Now, sometimes a friend, a free person, would wash the feet of someone else. And if they did that, it was a token of friendship. And later on we read, not in the Bible, but in other customs, other stuff we've read of times throughout the, the few thousand years of the Bible is that it, it wasn't ordinary for husbands to wash the feet of wives, but it was for wives to wash the feet of husbands. I think this is not a bad idea. <clears throat> Casey's not here today, all right? She's, she's gone. I'm going to talk to her later and say, hey, baby, what do you think about bringing this back, all right? I'm not going to wash your feet. You wash my feet. I, I, who, who in here thinks Casey will go for that? Uh, we also know that foot washing was a practice in the, early, or in the church up until the 11th or 12th century. Over half of the time Christianity's been around, foot washing has been a part of, of the religious customs of who churches are. When you anointed feet with oil, this wasn't all that common. You would wash feet, but you wouldn't anoint them with oil unless you had the utmost respect for someone. And according to Matthew, Mark, and John... This woman comes in and anoints Jesus' feet and anoints his head. And the response is what makes me sit back and think, why do people respond that way? Because when you, when you read it, it says some of those present, you read Matthew 26, it says the disciples were the ones who were so angry. It says they were indignant, they were angry, they're why this waste. They rebuked her harshly. This isn't just that they looked at this woman and thought, she's kind of out of her mind right now. It's that verbally they are saying things that are expressing anger. Why? Because I don't think any of you would respond this kind of way. Maybe if you were there, you would have. But like this is strong. This is the language Jesus would use to drive out demons, like rebuking them. They scolded her. 
The disciples did this a few times to other people too. Remember they rebuked children for getting close to Jesus? They tell a sick woman not to get close to Jesus. And Jesus keeps saying, bring them to me. There, in this story, there are those who look upon this moment and they think that is a waste. It's a waste of money. It could have been used to go to the poor. But then what they thought was a waste and what they thought was a stench was something precious in the eyes of Jesus. Right? And how often in, in our own lives, like some of you are here right now, not a lot of you, maybe some of you though, who you feel like your, your life has been a waste, your job is a waste. And often what we think is a waste, Jesus sees as something that is beautiful. You may think there have been decades of waste in your life. It's something Jesus wants to redeem. What these people thought was a waste, Jesus honors. I'm blown away at this woman, Mary, who will have so much adoration and affection for who Jesus was and what he had done in her life and in the lives of those around her, that she would enter into a room of mostly men and do what she did. And she didn't care about her reputation, or at least we don't think she did. She didn't care if other people looked at her and thought, you, are a, you look like a fool right now. She didn't care. I think we need more people who have such adoration and affection for who Jesus is that we're going to do things out of faithfulness to Jesus and we, have, we don't care what other people think. And for her, what she ends up, ends up doing for Jesus, Jesus responds and Jesus says, hey, what this woman has done is going to be a story that will live on forever. Jesus doesn't say this every time he heals someone or raises someone from the dead. He does it in that by saying, this is a story that wherever the gospel is preached, this story is going to be made known. But, but for this woman, he says it. Like, hey, what she has just done is going to be a story that's going to go on for eternity. Mary didn't do this thinking that this is going to be a response. I'm going to do something that's going to get a bunch of retweets and likes on Facebook and people are going to like it and it's going to go viral and people are going to know who I am. It's that hey, she had affection and adoration that she wanted to she wanted to act upon it in some way. And she had no clue that what she was doing was preparing Jesus for his burial. Jesus says that's what she was doing, but she didn't know that. Like, no one was going to look at her days later and be like, you were such a prophet. Like, you knew it was preparing him for his burial. And she's like, I, I had no clue it was preparing him for his burial. We should teach us that there are times where we act in faithfulness to who God is. And the fruit from that may be something we never saw coming. We're just called to act in faithfulness. That we're going to act in faithfulness. I mean, it may even be being faithful in the really small things in life. And great fruit's going to come from it that we never saw coming. And that same fruit may have never come if we didn't act in faithfulness upon the small things. They scold her. Jesus comes to her defense. He says, leave her alone. And then there's, there, there's this one statement where Jesus says, why are you bothering her? She has done a, and some of your versions will have a different word in here. Some of your versions say she has done a beautiful thing to me. Some say she's done a good work. It's the word kalos, which could be good or useful. It's quality. It's beautiful. Some describe this as a sense of beauty that gives goodness an artistic glow. That what she has done is... It's glorious, it's, it's useful, it's beautiful. 
And Jesus says you'll always have the poor with you. And if you read in the Old Testament where that place is said, the very next line where Jesus quotes is that, so take care of the poor. So he's not, he's not rebuking or dismissing the poor. It's like there's a time and a place for that. From, but right now, what this woman has done is good. This debate over waste and beauty will never let up until Jesus comes back. And it's the call of the church to go throughout our lives in what the world wants to call waste. And where we see there's beauty there, we speak and declare that goodness over it. What I love about her, and I think some of the things we can take from this, is this, this woman, this Mary, she didn't desire a stage, but just faithfulness and obedience. And I've seen this play out in the life of this church countless times. Every year I think about this multiple times when the clothing sale comes along. The women who run that clothing sale are not looking for stage time. Though they love the publicity to get the word out, they're not asking for news crews to come and to interview them so that they can have little videos that go viral. In fact, whenever we ask them to come up on the stage, it's like, I really don't want to get up on the stage. Just want to do what they do. And the faithfulness from what happens in that clothing cell and the fruit that has come is going to bless generations to come. When my wife got sick with strep throat last February, February 25th, on a Sunday morning, she went to a clinic. I stood up here to preach. She said she was fine. I come down from preaching. Stoney Ramsey grabs me and says, you need to get to the ER. They just rushed Casey there. And I get there, and there's Leanne Ramsey with my wife. And Leanne had just connected with the woman taking care of my wife, who knew Leanne from the clothing cell. Casey ended up being just fine, all right? I've seen this when people, some of you, have walked the hallways of Kingsbury High School and Kingsbury Middle School, and you notice a teacher's lounge and a bathroom in the teacher's lounge that hadn't been upgraded in years, so you put together your resources so teachers could have a more decent place to go to the restroom and to hang out in the teacher's lounge. I've seen this with a number of you who have seen financial needs and you didn't want your name tagged to it, but you've given money to me or to Mark Taylor or to the church to bless someone else. I've seen this countless times, small things that are being done of just acting out of faithfulness, not even knowing the kind of fruit that may come from it, the many generations that would be blessed by it because of small acts of faithfulness. So this week for you, I doubt many of you are going to leave here and go wash feet of people in your workplace or in your neighborhood. But I hope you leave here thinking, let me be faithful in the small things this week. And the text I need to send, and the phone call I need to make, and the email that needs to go, the encouragement I need to give. Because you, know, you may have no clue how it's going to add up in eternity. I want to ask the elders and the prayer leaders, if you will, go around the room to receive people for prayer. If you're here today and you've never made a confession for Jesus to be the Lord of your life and you have never been baptized into Christ, this may not be the day for you to be baptized. It may be. It may be the day where you begin working toward a decision in your life to surrender your life to Jesus. And if so, we would love to join you as you think about that decision. If there is a prayer need you have, something we could pray over, if you want something to come before this church, come up front to one of these leaders, and you see around the room others who are here to simply receive you right there where they are to pray over you and speak a word of blessing over your life. Let's stand together and let's sing a song.